right, good morning, guys. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully we'll have some time tomorrow to kind of stop and reflect. You know, our lives are so busy that we put holidays into them. And the purpose of a holiday is to make you stop and think about something. You take a day off of work, you take a day off of whatever, so you stop and you think. And the purpose of tomorrow is to stop and remember um, the families that have made some severe sacrifices for our country. And so hopefully you'll take time to do that. And speaking of family, we're in the middle of this family talk series. And we've been talking about a number of different areas of family life and how we can follow Christ in these areas of our family. We've discussed singleness and we've discussed honoring our parents and and uh, a lot of other topics that we've talked about. Today we're going to talk about one that I think is incredibly practical to families. And we're going to talk today about how do we love and how do we engage this new family that we take on when we get married, our in-laws. How do, we, how do we interact and how do we honor God in this relationship that is now there when it comes to our in-laws? I heard you guys sort of laugh and murmur because you know it's a big deal. Uh, Jonathan Corbin announced last week uh, that Tara and I are going to take his 10-week sabbatical starting next Sunday. And we're really excited about that. Part of the, part of the goal is to sort of get back, step back from the, the breakneck speed of ministry that we have here at Grace and be able to spend some time with our families that we don't see very much. And, uh, and, and, and so this is really practical for us to talk about in-law relationships as we get ready to spend quite a bit of time, you know, with some of our, some of our families And uh, when two people get married, yes, you are marrying that person, but you are also marrying into a family that they bring with them. And a number of dynamics go into that. When you get married, it is really not too much different from moving to another country and having to adjust to a new uh, culture and new norms of living. Even a new language sometimes. When you move to China, you sort of expect that. You're going to have to adjust your expectations. You're going to adjust and learn how to navigate this new world. The same thing happens when you get married because you are meshing two very different cultures, two families into one. And it's, it, you had a different way of doing things than your spouse did. And so you kind of have to work at that on how to uh, make those two cultures work. It's very, very cross-cultural. You may hear things say, said like this. What do you mean your mom let you eat ramen noodles for breakfast? That's not happening here anymore. <laughs> or you might hear something like this. Babe, why are you folding the towels like this? My mom always said if we folded them this way, they'd fit perfectly over the towel bar. Or maybe this. It's Sunday. We always visit family on Sunday. Turn that football game off and let's go. Two very different cultures coming together into a marriage, right? In-laws can be fun, though, too. You know, one of my favorite stories has to do with my father-in-law. When I wanted to ask Tara to marry me, um, I didn't want her to know that it was coming. And so I was kind of paranoid that she would somehow find out. And so I decided I was going to call my future father-in-law at work. And I was going to ask him permission um, for the opportunity to, to marry his daughter. And so I call him one day at work, and I never, ever had done that before. We had dated for a couple of years, and so we knew each other. In fact, Tara and I met when we were in third grade, so we knew our families pretty well. We kind of grew up together. 
but I'd never called him at work. So when I called him, uh, his secretary answered and, and she said, hang on a minute. She, you know, transferred the call to him and he gets on the phone. He says, hello, John. And I just dive right into this really great speech that I had written about how much I loved his daughter and how he's always going to take care of her, how he's going to lead her towards Jesus. And, and on and on and on I went for like several minutes, just all this stuff. And so what do you think? You know, I kind of like get out at the end. And he's like, well, John, I, I'm going to have to call you back. I, I'm, in, I'm in a meeting with a couple of clients right now. He had taken the phone call because he thought, well, this must be an emergency. Why would John call me at work? And so here I was pouring out my heart of love on speakerphone for these clients <laughs> to hear what was going on. Thankfully, he did call me back that night and he said yes, and we've been married for 19 years. But uh, that was a, a little of a shaky start to that. In-laws can be a lot of fun, but spending time with your family isn't always easy. It's not always really easy. In-law stories aren't always that funny. That's why we're talking about and addressing it from Scripture this morning. A group of female friends gathered together uh, for a weekend away. They started sharing stories of their relationships with their mother-in-laws. The stories got more outrageous each time as they each tried to top the other story that had just been told in telling things their mother-in-laws had done or said to them. Finally, one gal very quietly said, I wish I could laugh about my mother-in-law. I know that I should love her, but the truth is that I hate her. And she sobbed uncontrollably. That's not a story incredibly hard for us to imagine as we think about in-law relationships. In fact, in a recent national poll that was taken from women regarding their in-law relationship, 70% stated dissatisfaction or negative feelings. 70%. Their responses in this study ranged from the extreme, I wish she were dead, to a milder, I'm glad they don't come to visit us very often. Throughout history, it's actually been that way. 6,000 years ago, in fact, uh, Rebecca in Genesis complained to her husband Isaac that her two daughter-in-laws, their relationship was so bad that she felt like dying. That's in Genesis 27. Perhaps this is one of the most challenging or has the potential to be one of the most challenging relationships you'll ever have. If not now, there's a good chance you'll be in an in-law relationship in the future if you're raising children or if you plan to get married at some point, potentially. And so this is something that we want to talk about, we want to address. Why is it the case that this is such a difficult relationship? It's because there is conflict before the relationship even starts. And here's what it is. At the very basis of the relationship, one side will always see him or her first as a man or a woman that they are marrying. And the other side will always view that same person as their child first. And so this, these two competing, radically different views of the same person are kind of a basis for conflict that comes out of this relationship. That makes sense to me when I think about it that way. You see, parents come into a wedding, into this relationship with a suitcase full of memories from when that child was a baby and, 
and, and, and when they were young and kids and they were chasing them at soccer games and when they were, you know, hard maybe times during teenage years and they came through those and they carry all those memories with them. On the other side, there is this other person who is so excited. They're coming into this marriage, into this relationship with an empty suitcase, but they're filled and they're eager, I'm sorry, to fill it with brand new memories and brand new experiences that they can't wait to have together with this person that they are marrying. And this is the basis for the struggle. It makes sense why there is conflict, but church, we can do better than 70% dissatisfaction. We can do better than 70% of those in in law relationships having negative feelings. Let's turn our Bibles to see an example of an in law relationship that actually thrived. Would you turn to Ruth chapter 1 today? Ruth chapter 1, and we'll look at the first 18 verses. It's in the Old Testament, it's next to the book of Judges. We have ushers coming down, they have Bibles for you if you would like one. If you just put your hand up, we'd be glad to give one to you. And that is your. Your gift from us to you if, you if you need one or like it. We've preached through this whole story of Ruth before. It's a beautiful story, but today we're going to focus specifically on the in-law relationship in the story. I often say that I love how honest the Bible is. The Bible is so full of poor in-law relationships in Scripture. That's because the Bible is so much like real life. Sometimes they got it right, and sometimes they got it wrong. And that's a lot like my life and probably yours too. And But when we look today, we want to see an example, I think, uh, of a positive relationship where a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law work for their relationship to succeed and to thrive. The book of Ruth, it happens somewhere during the time period of the Judges. And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Judges, the book right before that, is this time period where this story takes place, where it's inserted into. And it gives us a kind of a glimpse inside what was happening at that time. One of the key phrases that you'll read as you read the book of Judges over and over, you'll, hear, you'll see this phrase that it says, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God would raise up a judge and the Israelites would follow God for a period of time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, And then again, they would do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and they would walk away. And there was this kind of continual cycle of following God, not following God, following God, not following God. And that is all throughout Judges. And we'll see that here in this story as well. Let's read together. Would you stand with me? And we're just going to read the first five verses, Ruth 1, 1 to 5 together. We'll read them together and then we'll get started. Now, I do apologize. There's a bunch of names in these five verses that we're going to get to read together. So let's see how we do, okay? All right. Ruth 1, 1 to 5. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Thanks. You can have a seat. Now I said this was a beautiful story. That doesn't start out very beautiful, does it? What a sad start to this story. 
So much tragedy here in those five verses that we read. A famine hits the land of Israel. That's ironic because if you happen to catch where they were from, verse 1 tells us they were from Bethlehem in Judah. And when you're reading the scriptures, you always want to try to look for those details, look for those clues that just give you a little bit of insight into what's really going on. And Bethlehem, the, that city, the word literally means house of bread. And so in this town, the house of bread, there, there was no bread. There, there was this famine happening. But this is what happens in this cycle of evil that the Israelites were in, where they did not do what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. He then lovingly and graciously allows them to live that out. And if they're not going to follow him and his ways, then he is not able to bless them and care for them and protect them either. They kind of tie his hands. Same is true of us. When we walk away from God's way of doing things, we, take, we walk away from his ability to bless us and to cover us. And that's what's happening here. And so this famine is in the house of bread. Now, famine is a terrible thing. When we go without an afternoon snack, we say, I'm starving. Not really. To not be able to eat, to, to live in a time of famine is a horrible, dreadful thing. But this family decides to move on. We read that they moved to the land or the country of Moab. Elimelech, the, the, the father of this family, fails as a leader. During this time of famine, instead of trusting God, he moves. Now, when we read he moves to the land of Moab, that doesn't sound like a really big deal, except if we read back in other parts of the Old Testament, Moab was a country that God had forbid his people to spend any time with. They were so wicked. In Moab, they worshiped this god named Chemosh, and, and the way that they would worship him was filled with all kinds of these sexual rituals. And they would also sacrifice children. Just a horrible place. And God did not want his people to take on any of those customs and become part of that. And so, and so when they move to the land of Moab, that's not a small deal. Basically, he's rejecting God, Elimelech is, and he's moving to a country where he's going to take things into his own hands, where he thinks it's better for him there because of the famine that has come to his home. And then his sons, they also fail as the leaders of their family, they marry Moabite women, which was also for the same reasons God had asked them and forbid them to, to not do that. And so these men fail as the leaders of their homes. And in fact, they all die, which is incredibly ironic. Because why had they left Israel? Because they were scared of what? Dying. And then they moved to this other land and there they die. And then Naomi is is left alone, no husband and, and no wives, or I'm sorry, no sons. We must be careful when we are tempted to take matters into our own hands and to walk away from God because we tie his hands of blessing on our lives. As you read this story, hopefully you feel the desperation here. You feel sort of the, the state of despair that Naomi is in at this point. Out of their failure, however, we meet Ruth and Naomi and their relationship, these in-laws. And so we pick up the story there in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. 
With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And I think that might be the saddest part of the story because they had left where God ended up providing. She finds out back home, if we would have stayed there, God would have provided for us. He was providing for everyone back home and now she has to go back, but she doesn't have her family anymore. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. Naomi, as she is walking along, it's about a 30-mile journey, 30 miles to Moab from Judah. And so as she's walking along on this journey back home, she's thinking about her prospects of what she's going to find when she gets there. And she realizes that it's better for her daughters-in-law to stay where they are, to stay with their family. And uh, they reply to her uh, in verse 10. They said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi makes a case. She says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And so as she's going along, she's realizing, you know, what is going to be there in front of them. Was it going to be better for her to leave her daughters-in-law behind? No, it actually would be harder for her because she wouldn't have anybody in, in her misery with her. She wouldn't have anybody to help care for her. But would it be better for her daughters-in-law to stay behind with their families? She decides, yes, it would be. And so here is a glimpse into this relationship that they have. She decides that it is better for her to look out for her daughters-in-law than to look out for her own. Like every relationship that we're in, she puts the need, we're supposed to put the needs of the other person ahead of our own. And she makes a really convincing case. It's an interesting conversation here in, in, in the way that God provided for widows. What would happen if a husband would die, then one of the brothers of that husband would take that widow into his home and care for her and provide for her so that she was not left alone. You have to remember, this is very different times than, than, than today that we live in. And, and a woman did not have a way to provide a living for herself, to sustain herself. And so this was God's way of caring in that culture. And, and, and so without any sons, Naomi says, there's no one else. I don't have any more sons for you to marry. There's no one left for you. And, and then let's just pretend that I would get married tonight and, and, ha- and get pregnant tonight. And, and were you going to wait till they grow up and you're going to marry? She says, no, that's crazy. And she's right. That is crazy. And so she convinces them. She's being very convincing that they need to go. And she even adds that God's hand is against her. She doesn't have much faith in God, but she is still loving to her daughters-in-law. Verse 14, we'll continue the story. At this, they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. 
Have you ever seen a scene like this? It's, it's terrifying. Or, or, I'm sorry, it's, it's heartbreaking. They're, they're weeping in the middle of the road. They're, they're uncontrollably sobbing because they think this is the end of their relationship. And Naomi's believing this is probably the end of her life. Right? She's not going to have anything left for her when she gets back. But Ruth decides that she is going to stay still, even after more urging. And we see her heart. We, we hear her heart in one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture here in verse 16 to 18. Read along with me. It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. One of the most beautiful passages ever written in scripture. Where you die, I will die. Where you go, I will go. What a beautiful thing that she says. What a beautiful sentiment that's in her heart that she is willing to take on the situation and the plight of Naomi and make it her own as well. This passage is often read at wedding ceremonies because it's a beautiful passage that describes the relationship between a husband and a wife. But I wonder if those who choose that for the wedding passage realize it was actually written from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. And don't miss in this passage Ruth's conversion experience. She says, from now on, she is rejecting her God. She says, your God is my God. And she begins to follow Jehovah, the God of Israel. As we look at this interaction with Ruth and Naomi, there's some things that we can take away as we try to think about the relationships that we're in with our families. And I want to give you guys some thoughts here today, some things for you and I to consider. So let me give you those now. As you're thinking about your relationships and if there's some hardship or maybe it's a great relationship, but you can still grow. Um, or maybe you're in that 70% of people that are dissatisfied with your in-law relationships and have negative feelings. Let's, let's talk about some things. Number one, to try to improve that relationship or to, to, to look at some things, here's number one. Determine the boundaries of your relationship. Determine the boundaries of your relationships. Let me explain that. Naomi made a decision <clears throat> of what she could offer and what she couldn't offer. She knew the boundaries. She didn't take responsibility for what she couldn't do or couldn't change about her situation. Let me explain what I mean with the story because that's still confusing. This is a, a, I read this this week. It's, it's from an author who describes her interaction with her mother-in-law. My first introduction, she says, to Esther came one Sunday morning when I accompanied Bill to his church. After the service concluded, he introduced me to his parents and they invited us out to dinner. His dad was a quiet man, but I could tell that he liked me. There was a warm twinkle in his clear blue eyes that I found very charming. If there was a twinkle in Esther's eyes, I must have missed it. She asked many questions, but they weren't the warm, I want to get to know you kind. They were the who are you and how many times you've already been married variety. I answered them gamely, but I recognized the distrust that was behind them and it put me on guard. 
and that is where I stayed for a very long time. 30-some years later, that distrust still haunts our relationship from time to time, but it no longer offends me. Although Esther's first inclination is to always be suspicious, it does not mean that I have to live in a perpetual state of offense. I cannot change her, but I can change my response to her. It makes us actually both happier this way. Maybe in your relationship, setting those boundaries might sound like this. You might hear yourself saying something like, I can't help but blow my top when he starts talking like that. Or, of course, I'm going to go off on her if that's how she's going to act around us. In those circumstances, when we're saying those things, we are giving that other person control over us. In those circumstances, we're not guarding our boundaries. You are letting that other person control your feelings. You're saying, if they do this, then I have to do that. And the answer is, that's actually not true. And so here's what I mean by determining the boundaries of your relationship. You need to understand what you can't control, which is their actions. And then you can understand what you can control, which is your reaction. With the help of the Holy Spirit, you and I can control our thoughts and we can control our attitudes. You and I, with the help of the Holy Spirit, are not victims. We don't simply need to respond because of what they do to us, the other person. By the way, these truths actually apply to all relationships, not just those of in-laws. Another person doesn't force you to do something wrong. There is a right reaction that you can have in a relationship, even if the other person is offensive towards you. We need to understand what we can't control, which is their actions, but then begin to understand what we can control, our reactions, and control those. So determine the boundaries of the relationship. Don't give them power over you. Number two, another thought as we try to learn from Ruth and Naomi here is this. Communicate, communicate, communicate. In our relationships, we need to communicate with each other. In every relationship that we're in, Naomi shares honestly and openly what she's thinking. There's no secrecy. Naomi doesn't give any hints. She just says, this is what's going to be. If we go back, it's better for you to be here. And she's, she's loving and kind about it, but she's honest and she communicates. And then Ruth does the same thing. No, I'm going to go with you. This is what I'm committing to you. Again, there's no kind of wondering or secrecy. There's open communication. My understanding of being around a lot of people is that most people are poor communicators. Most of us are poor communicators at home. We're poor communicators at work. We're poor communicators at church. We're poor communicators in most of the relationships that we're in. There's something that's uncomfortable about being honest. Somehow we have to overcome this deficiency and find a way to respectfully and honestly state what we really think about a matter. We have to communicate. And that's so critical in our in-law relationships. 
When we moved to Indiana, I was concerned about how our relationship with Tara's parents would go. Like I said, we actually grew up together. But when we were in college and already dating, Tara's parents moved to Indiana. We all grew up in Pennsylvania. My, uh, my, my in-laws moved to Warsaw. And I didn't know how it was going to go. We had planted a church there in Philadelphia, and we felt like God was calling us out here to, to, to move on from that ministry. And, and I thought that this would be a great place to, to serve, and I could grow here, and God could use us with the opening that was, was here at the time, and thought it was a great place. And so we began to move out, but I was concerned. I didn't know, not because my in-laws had done anything. I just didn't know. We had never lived close to them before. And you got to understand that Tara's family grew up very close In fact, Tara's family owned an orchard. Her dad's family owned an orchard. So they all lived on the same road at different parts of the property. And they were together quite a bit. And that was not uh, how our experiences was. We we lived in Pennsylvania, two states over, you know, the first six years that we were married. And I didn't know what their expectations of us were going to be. And so I wanted to have a conversation about it. And so it took a lot of courage, but we talked about it. And I said, listen, you know, like, like we can't, like Sundays are really important to our ministry as a pastor, I have to be available. And so we can't come visit like every week. Like that's not possible. That's an expectation that we can live up to. We had this conversation about how often we were going to be able to visit and all this kind of stuff. And, and again, I kind of went through this whole, you know, sort of long speech that I gave. And I love their response. It was Price. I said, John, we lived out here for a long time. We have our own friends. That's what they said. <laughs> I said, OK, great. Then, then we're on the same page. We'll, we'll visit when it works for both of our schedules, but we're not going to put impossible expectations on each other that somehow you need to be available to us anytime to watch our kids and we need to be available anytime that you desire to see us. But we'll work together and we'll communicate about that. And that's how relationships have to be. If you find yourself getting frustrated with an in-law, perhaps you need to ask yourself, do you have an expectation that you haven't communicated to them? Do you have some kind of expectation, something you thought they should be doing or think they should be doing, but you've never actually told them? That could be helpful to communicate it. Or maybe you have communicated it and they just disagree. They're an adult now and you have to be okay with their disagreement. Or you could just choose to be mad all the time. That's an option too. But I think the first two are better. So this principle, though, applies to all situations again and to all relationships, not just in-laws. We need to learn to communicate, communicate, communicate. Let me give three th- or two thoughts to parents-in-law, to the ones who are gaining kids. Number one, or, or number three, I guess, if I stay with my order here, three. Parents-in-law need to be supportive and helpful when asked, but not a burden. That was something. (laughs) Naomi does a great job in this story. If you have time today to read the rest of Ruth, it's really a great story. And she does a great job, you'll see, of being helpful and supportive to Ruth. She gives her all kinds of help and support as she can, but she's asked. She doesn't going to offer her insight when it's not necessarily wanted. And that's a really hard thing for parents 
because your whole life you've been training and coaching and, and shaping and molding. But as a person becomes an adult, and especially as they become married, your role in their life changes. And so parents-in-law need to be supportive and helpful when asked, but not a burden. In Genesis 2.24, which is a good passage for us to look at, so let's turn there. God gives some instructions. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. So chapter two has got to be like page two or something. Genesis 2.24, this very first wedding that happens between Adam and Eve, God says this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. There's something critical that happens at the wedding ceremony, at the time of marriage. And it's really difficult for us as parents to let go, but something important is happening. A man and a woman leave their father and mother and are united to each other and they become one flesh. When a baby is born, there's, there's one, of the, one of the steps that has to happen is for the umbilical cord to be cut. And that was something that I was not super excited about. Being a pastor, I don't cut a lot of flesh. It's just not what I do every day. And so when the nurse like, gave me this like, scissor things, I'm like, my hand was shaking so bad. And I'm like, I, I think that's going to hurt. And she actually had to kind of like squeeze my hand to cut this umbilical cord of my kids. When a baby is in their mom's womb, they're relying through that umbilical cord for all of their nourishment, for all of their sustenance, for everything they need to survive and to live. They're depending on them. But once they become their own person, they then learn over time how to eat and care for themselves. The same thing happens at a wedding. There is an umbilical cord that is cut, two main ones, in fact. When a person is married, they cut the umbilical cord to their parents for dependency and for loyalty. The first umbilical cord of dependence, no longer are they dependent on their parents for the things they need for life. They now depend on each other, a husband and a wife. That's a really critical step. And sometimes as in-laws, we have to step back and let them learn how to depend on each other, how to even fail together and succeed together. That's necessary. We can't get in the way. They have to depend on each other. They don't depend on us anymore. We don't provide for them anymore. That's their job now as adults and as a married couple to depend on each other. So when something goes wrong and the car breaks down, she doesn't call her dad anymore. She calls her husband. He's the one she depends on. Now, he may call her dad and say, hey, our car broke down. But that's his call. When he has a need for some kind of mothering or something hurt or eating some advice, he goes to his wife now. That's who he depends on, not his mom. This dependence changes. The second umbilical cord that changes is loyalty. They now become one flesh. They now have this new family. 
and they're loyal to each other, even above their other family. And so conversations, you know, go where, where don't be offended by them saying, well, I'll talk to my husband and we'll see if we can come over for Christmas. I'll talk to, to my wife. And, and we haven't decided yet what we're doing, but we'll let you know. We'll decide that together. Make sense? We have to let that happen as parents. That's their job now. They're loyal to each other. And we don't have the right to get in the way. They're adults. It's hard. I, I, I haven't been there yet. My, my oldest is 15. She's in high school. And I can only imagine how it will be harder to release them, but that is what God commands and, and he knows what is best. And hopefully it's helpful to think about how you would want your in-laws to treat you. Hopefully how they did or maybe how they didn't, but you're going to do it differently. Another point for parents-in-law, we'll call this 3B. Parents-in-law need to be for the marriage, not just for their child. For the marriage, not just for the child. I could always count on my mother-in-law during our struggles in our marriage. I still can. And in our struggles in ministry to be supportive of our marriage. And that was so critical, especially early on. It was hard for them when we lived in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. They lived out here in Indiana. And we were starting to pop out the grandbabies. That was hard for them to not be close. But I could always count on her to be supportive. It's equally hard now for my parents that we live here and they live so far away. But we have to support what God is leading us to do. And I'm so thankful that my in-laws have never tried to talk us out of doing something that God was leading us to do because of selfish reasons, because they wanted to keep us close. Sometimes parents hold their children back from chasing after Jesus with all of their hearts because they want their kids to stay there and fill some need that God is the one who's going to meet that need for you. We have to release our kids to be all that Jesus wants them to be wherever he wants them to be. During those hard seasons when Tara's parents missed her, they could have easily suggested that maybe I was making a mistake in leading our family, that maybe we should have left the inner city because there was a lot of danger and crime, but they never did. If your child starts to, to vent to you about, your, about their spouse, your response needs to be, I'm sorry to hear that. Have you, have you talked to your husband or your wife about that directly? That sounds like something you need to, to work out together. That is not your opportunity to pile on and say, oh, I knew that about them. I knew that about her. Listen, you are for the marriage, not for your child. Let's move to number four. Let's talk to the kids-in-law. Number four, kids-in-law must commit fully to their spouses. They must commit fully to their spouses. Remember those umbilical cords that we talked about. 
those, those umbilical cords of dependency and loyalty. So now you're dependent on each other. You learn to go through life and you figure it out yourselves. You're, you're loyal to each other and so that's who you go to when you need help. You say those things to, to your parents. Oh, mom, that sounds wonderful. Thanks so much for making all those plans for, for Christmas Day. We'll get back to We'll let you know. I'll talk to my husband. We'll let you know. That, that sounds really cool. Thanks for thinking of us. But we actually are going to be over here on that day. And then, and then we'll come over on this other day, if that's okay with you. But you're loyal to each other. And you figure that stuff out together. So commit fully to your spouse. You can't be one foot in, one foot out. Your, your spouse needs to know that you and them are in it together against the world. 4B, kids-in-law must honor their father and their mother. Pastor Jim gave a great sermon just a few weeks back. And our role as adults is still to honor our parents, not to obey, that changes with adulthood, but to honor and to respect them. A good marriage needs outside support. And your in-laws, they may be incredible positive influences on your marriage. They have experiences that you don't have. And they have some wisdom that you don't have. So be respectful. Don't just reject it all. You don't be the ones who make in-law jokes. Because they can be fantastic relationships. No one probably loves you more. And if there is pain there, remember Jim's words from a few weeks back to still do what you can to honor them and to speak well of them when you speak of them. As the story of Ruth continues, this man named Boaz, he enters into this hopeless situation. These two widows who have no way to provide themselves are in desperate straits. And maybe that's how you feel about your situation with your in-laws. But the power of the gospel is that no situation is hopeless. And God sends Boaz into this situation and rescues Ruth and Naomi. And a lot of scholars believe he is a picture of Jesus, how he enters into our hopelessness and rescues us. And what's even cooler about this story is that Jesus himself is the great, 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 great grandson of Ruth. He comes out of this family, this desperate situation that had no hope. The savior of the world comes from that family. That's the power of the gospel. Jesus can transform any situation. So there is no hopelessness. But this is also the power of the gospel, that Jesus chose to put our needs ahead of his needs. And that's what we must do in our relationships to make them work. We look at things from the other person's perspective. We look at things from where they're at, not just ourselves. That is the reminder of Memorial Day as well, where brave men and women chose to put our well-being ahead of theirs. What would happen if we all did that in our family relationships? If we would choose to put others' best interests in front of our own? What if we surrendered to Jesus and we asked him to unleash his grace on some hard situations? 
Do you know what would happen? Our families would change. Our church would change. Our community would change. And we would see the world come to Jesus like never before as we lived out the gospel in front of them of believing Jesus into hopeless situations and treating others like he treats us. Lord, would you help us in this area of our lives where there is tension, Lord, where there is struggle. It's a difficult relationship at times for the reasons we talked about. But Lord, I believe that we as a church can do better than 70% being negative or dissatisfied with that relationship. God, would you give us grace to show each other? Would you give us encouragement? Would you give us the words to be able to speak into each other and communicate? Lord, would you rescue this area of our family relationships? Lord, we surrender to you. We never want to get in the way of your will, your plan. And so we surrender our lives again to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Memorial Day weekend. We love you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.